and longed for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done, that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit, that ye may abound, that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are up to verse 6. Subject, again, is the first word of verse 4, charity. Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have one phrase at a time gone through The opening verses of 1 Corinthians 13, we have used the 
illustration of the painting of a portrait, because that is what the Spirit does here. He is painting before our eyes the portrait of true love, portrait which is ultimately a portrait of Jesus Christ himself. Now as we come to verse 6, we're nearing the conclusion of the Apostles' description of the many actions and attitudes of love. There is a few more contained in verse 7. But as we come to verse 6 tonight, we see that the portrait of love has a smile on its face. Because true love is not something that is dour, dark, sad. But love has an irrepressible joyfulness about it. The portrait of love in 1 Corinthians 13 has a joyful smile on its face. As verse 6 says, Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. The text has two parallel statements. It's going to explain to us that in which love does not find joy, but also that in which love finds abundant joy. Love is a joyful thing. Indeed, Genuine and abiding joy grows out of true Christian love. The way plants grow out of nutrient-rich soil. The child of God who has been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, who has been given a lively faith, from that lively faith springs true love of God. And from that love of God springs true and abiding joyfulness. If you go to Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, as they're listed in verse 22, you'll notice that the first two fruits are love and then joy. These two go together. Love and joy. That's no coincidence. True Christian love is a joyful thing. And the believer who loves the Lord, the believer who loves his neighbor as himself, is someone who is going to abound with spiritual joy. So that's what we're going to look at this evening. We're going to look at the joyfulness of love. And we'll have two points that simply follow the two main parts of the text. The joyfulness of love. First, looking at the negative, that it is joyful not in iniquity. And then secondly, that true Christian love is joyful in the truth. The inspired apostle begins verse 6, love rejoiceth not in iniquity. What does that mean? Well, the word iniquity carries the meaning of unrighteousness and injustice. It denotes that which is contrary or against God's good and holy will as revealed in his word and specifically in his commandments. God's law is the unchanging standard of what is right and wrong. And iniquity then broadly refers to all that goes against God's will. That is sin. 1 John 5 verse 17 says this, All unrighteousness is sin. 
And the word unrighteousness there in 1 John 5.17 is the same word that we have in 1 Corinthians 6, iniquity. All iniquity is sin. That which is contrary to the righteousness of the holy God and thus that which displeases and aggrieves him. Love, which comes from God, love which is a fruit authored in the believing heart by the operation of the Holy Spirit, that love rejoices not in unrighteousness, in iniquity, in sin. What the text means then is that love does not derive its joy from anything that is contrary to the will of God. Love does not find joy and happiness in that which is displeasing to God. Love does not take pleasure in sin. Anything that is unrighteous, unjust, offensive to God, aggrieves the child of God in whose heart this love burns. As a flame kindled by the Spirit. Love does not find sin pleasing. And thus love does not look for its satisfaction in unrighteousness. Now at this point it's helpful for us to recall some of the context in the book of 1 Corinthians. The context we looked at our introductory sermon in this series. You remember that. The Apostle Paul writes the epistle of 1 Corinthians to instruct true believers who had real spiritual problems in their congregation. And thus 1 Corinthians 13, as it paints this beautiful picture of true love, this chapter also serves as a rebuke. The reason the Corinthians needed 1 Corinthians 13 is that they were not walking in this more excellent way. You can think of some of the major problems that existed in the church in Corinth. Remember, the one that comes up early in the book is the trouble caused by division and a party spirit. You had different members of the church gluing themselves to their favorite teachers. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And in that, there was a lack of Christian love. Indeed, there was a certain rejoicing in iniquity. As different members of the congregation identified themselves with their favorite teacher, they lifted themselves up over others. They defined themselves over against their brothers and sisters in the congregation who followed a different teacher. And there was a certain pleasure in being on that man's side and not that party. A rejoicing in iniquity. Then you come to chapter 5 and you remember the horrible sin of the man who had an illicit relationship with his stepmother. And the Apostle Paul rebukes the Corinthians for being puffed up and that they did not handle this sin, which is odious even in the eyes of the world, but in pride lifted themselves up. And there was a certain rejoicing in unrighteousness there. Or the spiritual gifts that many of the Corinthians had. The gifts of speaking in tongues which they lifted up on a pedestal and diminished the other gifts that weren't so flashy. And there that increased the division in the congregation. Certain members thought themselves superior and looked down on others. And there's a certain rejoicing in that, a rejoicing in iniquity. This was a word the Corinthians needed to hear. And thus, a word we need to hear, and that's important. It's very easy for us to read the first part of this text 
Love rejoices not in iniquity and think, well, we're pretty good. If there's anyone that rejoices in iniquity, it's our world, is it not? It's our culture, is it not? Just look at American culture today. You see the exaltation of wickedness. Light is called darkness and darkness is called light. Gross sin is paraded about as if it is the greatest thing. There's rejoicing in iniquity, but the text does not call us to look all around us. Though there is much rejoicing in iniquity, but the text puts its finger on you and me. On the church, on us, and says... Love rejoiceth not in iniquity. And as we've repeated over and over throughout this sermon series, the negative stresses the natural inclination that we have. We are prone by nature to do just that. To rejoice in iniquity. To derive or look for a certain joy in sin. And so let's explore that a little bit. Let's see what the text would put its finger on in our lives. How do we rejoice in iniquity? In what ways? And there's two main points I want to bring out here. First, we can easily rejoice in iniquity by enjoying the pleasures of sin For its own sake. And when we're really honest with ourselves, we see that in ourselves, do we not? The attractiveness of certain sins to us. They look good. They look delightful. And very easily we yield to them. And that brings out the exceeding sinfulness, not just of the world, but the exceeding sinfulness of my sinful nature, which I share with the world, and indeed is no different from the sinful nature of the people of the world. The exceeding sinfulness of my sinful nature, it comes to light when I think about how often I take pleasure in sin simply for its own sake. And that shows itself even in our early days. Parents, you see it in even your little children. For an example, you're sitting at the dinner table. Your little child is in his or her high chair. And you're telling your child to eat. And your child takes the fork. And is going to drop it off the side of the high chair. And you say to your child, don't do that. And the child looks you in the eye and drops The fork. What is that? That's our sinful nature rejoicing in iniquity. Finding a certain pleasure in sin for its own sake. And we don't grow out of that. We just find more ways to do that. Anger fills my heart. And my father addresses that anger through his word which comes to my mind and through my conscience which says don't act on it. And yet nevertheless that curse word comes out of my mouth and that angry outburst explodes on my spouse or on my child or upon my friend because it felt good to vent that emotion. What's happening there? Rejoicing in iniquity. In that moment, 
That sin seems good. It seems like it will make me happy. It will give me relief. And so I do it against better knowledge, against my conscience, against what the Word of God says. And when I rejoice in iniquity, I am not loving my God and I am not loving my neighbor. The text puts puts its finger on something that's very relevant to us in our struggle against sin. Very often, we're prone to rejoice in that iniquity. And so each of us is called to think now. Think upon ourselves, to think upon our ways. Is there a besetting sin in my life that I yield to over and over again? Why am I yielding to it? This is part of the reason. I'm rejoicing in iniquity. I'm looking to it to give me something, to make me feel good, to make me happy, to give me rest. But the text sets before us now this important truth that we must see. In the moment that feels good, in the moment I can justify it perhaps, but it goes against the law of God. It's completely contrary to his goodwill for me. In that moment when I rejoice in iniquity, I am not loving my God. I am not loving him. Nor am I loving my neighbor, particularly if that sin affects my neighbor negatively, and I'm certainly not pursuing the true good of myself. Rejoicing in iniquity. But now, in the second place, a way that we can rejoice in iniquity is taking pleasure in my neighbor's iniquity. The first thing that we looked at, we focused more on ourselves. We can rejoice in our own sin for its own sake. Because of the momentary pleasure it gives to the sinful nature. But now, just like the rest of 1 Corinthians 13, the focus is on love for the neighbor. How do we rejoice in the neighbor's iniquity? Well, there are various ways that this can happen. Taking pleasure in those who commit iniquity Seeing that iniquity that they commit. Liking it, even if I don't do it myself. Think of Romans 1 verse 32. Speaking of the ungodly world, but again, when the Bible speaks of the ungodly world, let's remember we share the same nature as the people of the world. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death... Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Do we have pleasure in them that do things that we know are displeasing to God? Maybe things we wouldn't do ourselves, but we enjoy watching others do them. Or hearing others do them. And here, there's an application to that most common of violations of the ninth commandment that is so pleasurable to the flesh, gossip. 
Giving our ear to gossip is rejoicing in iniquity. Even if I don't employ my tongue to add fuel to the wildfire that is raging about, by giving my ears to it and rejoicing in it and taking pleasure in it, I am having pleasure in them that do iniquity. We think about the entertainment that prevails and pervades our society and which finds its way into Christian homes. How much that flashes across the television screen or the computer screen draws us into a certain kind of having pleasure in others who do iniquity. Now that's not to say that in the reading of a good piece of literature you can never read something that speaks about sin or sins taking place. You have that in the Bible. But the point is we ought not to entertain ourselves with anything that glorifies, promotes iniquity. Or anything, the purpose of which is to give pleasure by setting that iniquity before us. So the text, the text has this to teach us. Christian, if you love your God, set no wicked thing before your eyes. Set no thing before your eyes that is going to draw you into taking pleasure in the iniquity of others. Because God sees it too, and it doesn't rejoice the heart of God. That should be the Christian's mindset. What rejoices God ought to rejoice me. But now another way in which we can rejoice in the iniquity of another person. Being happy when we see them sin or fall into disrepute on account of their own sin. If we harbor anger against someone, if we have a vengeful spirit, if we nurse a grudge, if we're keeping a record of wrongs, easily we will rejoice in another person's iniquity. Our hearts will leap with excitement when we hear something very negative about him or that he has sinned and been brought to humiliation. That's rejoicing in their iniquity rather than being aggrieved by that iniquity. Or there can be this, rejoicing in another person's iniquity because it gives us a sense of superiority. How often does this take place in the Christian community? Comparisons. Usually we compare ourselves favorably to fellow believers, my family doesn't do that, and they do that, and so spiritually, or you hear something about that other family in the church, and you think to yourself, wow, they did that, they're like that, and we start vaunting ourselves, we start puffing ourselves up. And there's another form of rejoicing in iniquity. 
You see, the Pharisee, when he prayed, I thank thee, O Lord, that I am not as other men are, even as this publican, even though he put on a face of horror at the iniquity of his of the publican there, he actually was rejoicing in that iniquity because that iniquity gave him, he thought, the license to lift himself up and look down on that other man. When we're puffed up in pride and we put ourselves up here, we're actually rejoicing in iniquity. We think ourselves better comparing ourselves to that other person. Fault finding. Being hypercritical. Fault finders and hypercritics can often put a pious face on. They can even talk a lot about loving the church. They expect good. They want good. They want the best. They're militating against error and all the rest. But fault finding and hypercriticism very often is rejoicing in iniquity. The fault finder and the hypercritic actually likes the fact that he finds sin in other people's lives. He rejoices in it because like the Pharisee, it gives him something to balloon himself in pride all over. He can lift himself up. So we see, so many subtle ways we rejoice in iniquity or can stumble into rejoicing in iniquity. So there are a couple of applications to wrap up the first point. In the first place, the text shows us the attitude that true love ought to have towards sin. Love is not a neutral thing. Love is not wishy-washy when it comes to moral judgments. Love is aggrieved by sin and will not celebrate it. Love will address sin and evil. Love will not leave it unaddressed or affirm the beloved in it. Love is not morally neutral. Because Christian love has a love for God. And when you have a love for God, you love what God loves. Now that doesn't mean, as sometimes people think it means, that doesn't mean... That we start being unkind, harsh, and judgmental. No, no. When love makes its moral judgments, when love is aggrieved by sin, when love addresses sin as it ought, it doesn't jettison verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 13. So that even as love addresses sin, it does so with long-suffering, with kindness, without pride, without behaving unseemly, without seeking her own, without hasty anger or rash judgment. Yet nonetheless, love has a holy intolerance for evil. That intolerance is a good intolerance. It's not a violent or a self-righteous intolerance. It is humble yet firm, kind yet convicted. Love rejoiceth not in iniquity. Second application. Love is a joyful thing, the text says. There is a joyfulness to love. But we must see this. That joyfulness does not come from iniquity. Sin is not the soil in which love grows. Or rather, in which joy grows. Sin is not the soil in which joy grows. The devil hoodwinks us time and time again because that's at the heart of the devil's lie. The devil makes sin 
look like it's all about joy. Indulge me and I will give you happiness. Whether it's saying that swear word to vent your anger, whether it's looking at those unclean images upon the computer screen, whatever it is, the lie of the devil is the same. I'll give you joy if you indulge me. In iniquity you will find the joy that satisfies you and fills that emptiness inside of you or numbs the pain for a little while. But beloved, it's a lie that's the murderous lie of the devil. That's the lie with which he slew our first parents when he said, if you just disobey, you'll be happy because you'll be like God. Sin is kind of like a drug. It gives that rush. It lets you feel like God for just a second, deciding for yourself what is right and wrong. Until the bite of the poison comes right after that rush. So this text lets us see sin for what it is. There's no true joy in it. There's no true joy in it. It lies and it never delivers what it promises. The only thing sin can deliver is its wages, which is death. Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. And now we come to the second part of the text, the positive part, a beautiful, beautiful teaching. Love rejoices in the truth. So let's start by exploring the basic meaning of the second phrase of the text. What does that mean? We start with truth. Truth is simply reality as determined By God the creator. Truth is not a construct of the human mind. Truth is not determined by your feelings or mine. Truth is what is real. What is firm. And what is. Because God made it so. And God says it is so. The standard of truth is God and his own being. And we know what is true from his word. Because in his word he reveals what is real. Truth. Love rejoices in the truth. And that article, the, is important. It lets us know that the text is speaking about the whole truth of God. It's not just talking about particular truths, but the whole truth of God. The all-encompassing truth of God. The truth of God that he has revealed in his word. The center of which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those good tidings of great joy. As summarized in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. The truth that is ultimately the person of Jesus Christ himself. Because Jesus is the only one who said. And the only one who may say. I am. Am the way, the truth, and the life. And so to put it simply, the truth in the text here is the revealed truth of God, namely the truth of the Christian faith. And this truth of the Christian faith encompasses both our knowledge and our life. It's the saving knowledge of God in Jesus Christ that percolates Down through every part of who we are 
and every part of our life. And we need to see truth that way. Truth is more than just a matter of the intellect. It is a matter of the heart and is a matter of the life. So it is with God. God is the God of truth, the scriptures teach. And the truth of God refers not merely to the content of the divine mind, but truth is an attribute of the divine being. It is who he is. God is truth. He lives truth. He is the one only true God. And so the truth that he reveals to his people is a truth that is not simply given that it may be stored in the mind, but it is a truth that is given to transform and direct and shape the entire life. Indeed, the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, as he sanctifies us and conforms us to the image of God, he causes that truth to show itself. In our life, he infuses it into our life. So truth here is not just intellectual, but it's moral. It includes holiness, godliness, a life that is lived according to the truth of God. A life conformed to him. So as we approach this text, we want that holistic view of truth here. It includes the doctrines of the scripture, yes, the teachings of the Bible, but it includes everything. The life. The life that is nourished and nurtured by the teaching of the word of God. Love rejoices in this truth. That is, love seeks and delights in this truth. And that makes sense. Love is the committed pursuit of the true good. And the truth of God is supreme good. When the text says that love rejoices in the truth, it means That love does not find its joy in iniquity or anything that is contrary to God. But love finds its joy in God's truth and all that is in harmony with who God is and what God wills. The person in whom the love of God is shed abroad, that person takes pleasure in truth and living a truthful life. That person... As Philippians 4 verse 4 says, rejoices in the Lord always. He believes, he delights in that truth of God. He lives it out. Deceit and falsehood he abhors. As a child of the light, he loves the light. He walks in the light. And by the work of the Spirit in him, more and more truth becomes a characteristic of his life. He's sincere, he's genuine, he's unaffected, he's without pretense, without guile, without deceit. The Christian who rejoices in the truth is a man of integrity who wants his life to be marked by truth in a way that reflects God who is the truth. Thus ultimately, love for God Rejoices in the truth 
rejoices in God himself. So now, like with the first point, we come to the question, how how do we live this out in our life then? How do we rejoice in the truth? And there are two things I want to bring out that parallel the two things we looked at in in the first point. Rejoicing in truth for its own sake, and then secondly, rejoicing in truth concerning the neighbor. First, we rejoice in the truth by rejoicing in the truth of God for its own sake. While our sinful nature is attracted to iniquity, the new man in Christ is drawn to the pure light of God's truth and finds its joy in God's truth. Here's one of the simplest and most foundational principles of the Christian life. God is my joy. God is my joy. Because God is truth. Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord. And he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. God is the good. Love seeks the good. In the love of God. We find the purest joy, and the most satisfying pleasure. God is good and the overflowing fountain of all good, and thus true blessedness, true satisfaction, the filling of that empty void in the human heart is found only in drinking from the fountain of all good, our God. A little while ago we sang a versification of Psalm 63, and the first three verses of Psalm 63 Express this idea so beautifully. The child of God finding his or her joy in God. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. That's rejoicing in the truth. Rejoicing in the Lord. Does that resonate with us? Is that the fountain to which we go daily in our pursuit of happiness? It's not to say that none of God's good gifts in this creation can be used To bring us pleasure. Indeed God's many good gifts are given to us. That we may enjoy them. But none of those things should be the fountain of our joy. That source of our joy. That to which we look for our abiding satisfaction and fulfillment. There is only one. The God of truth. He satisfies the soul. In this dry and thirsty land. Thus, love that rejoices in the truth is a love that is hungry for more and more of the truth of God. Hungry for the bread of life, Christ Jesus. Hungry for the word. Are we spiritually hungry people? Do we have excitement? Excitement 
There is rejoicing in the truth. Excitement about God. Excitement about the Lord Jesus Christ. Excitement about the things of His covenant and His kingdom. The things that God is doing in our own day to keep His word in faithfulness to His people. Think of the disciples on Pentecost and the excitement, the exuberant joy they had as they spoke about the wonderful works of God. Sometimes, as generational Christians, as members of the established church, which don't get me wrong, is a great blessing. But sometimes, we can be lacking in enthusiasm, can't we? Sometimes we can marvel at the excitement of new Christians. They have this this wide-eyed wonder at the things of the gospel which we, through familiarity, have grown somewhat bored with. The passion of our first love needs to be rekindled. It can be rekindled. We delve into the the truth of the word of God, searching the scriptures with glee, coming to church not just out of custom or because we have to be there, but because we want to hear more about God's truth and what it means for my life and what God has to say to me. And I want to take that truth and I want to consume it the way I consume a hearty meal so that I may digest it and gain strength from it and then go and live it out in my life. An excitement, an exuberance should characterize the lives of Christians that's rejoicing in the truth. The grace, the mercy, the peace of Christ that we hear pronounced over us the beginning and at the end of every worship service, we're to take that with us into our daily lives. Grace, mercy, peace. Live it out. It's rejoicing in the truth. Rejoicing in the truth is meditating upon things holy and wholesome. Philippians 4 verse 8. Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think. The idea there is not just occasionally think about it, but meditate, ponder, engross yourself in those things. There's so much stuff that wants us to think about it. There's so much gunk that can accumulate in our minds and in our hearts. The believer in love for God fills his mind and fills his heart with these things, beginning with God's truth. That truth makes us joyful. It has a sanctifying influence on our lives. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 17, that God would sanctify us by his truth, for his word is truth. Being in the word waters and fertilizes that crop of joy 
that grows out of the soil of Christian love. But now secondly, we rejoice, called to rejoice, in the truth about the neighbor. Love for God and love for his truth means we love all of God's truth and we seek what is true concerning our neighbor. Rejoicing in iniquity, one of the species of that is taking pleasure in my neighbor's sin or lifting myself up over my neighbor in comparison to him. But rejoicing in the truth means I don't find pleasure in lies about my neighbor or half-truths about my neighbor. Just as God is truth and not a God of half-truth, I will be his child who seeks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I don't countenance lies spoken against my neighbor. I'm not interested in having my opinions shaped by half-truths or misinformation. I endeavor in my formation of opinions and in my making of judgments to have them based squarely on what is true. Because truth matters to me. I delight in truth. My sinful nature looks for something else. My sinful nature is more prone to delight in what appeals to me. But I seek truth. Even if that truth isn't what advances my cause or my opinion. Go back to the problems in the church in Corinth and there's an application here. Very easily in the church, strife and division can be avoided if we all rejoice in the truth. Rather than rejoicing in half-truths that bolster my case or bolster my arguments, I seek the truth even if it goes against my own opinions. Rejoicing in the truth seeks the truth about the neighbor. Now apply that to our homes, to our relationships, to our families. And you go back to Philippians 4 verse 8. Rejoice in the truth. Rejoice in the good that God has given in your relationships. The good in your spouse. The good in your children. The good in your friends in the body of Christ. Sometimes we can misapply the doctrine of total depravity and think that we should never talk about the good in other people because that's somehow going to inflate pride. Now we always have to be careful about pride. But we must not ignore the reality that God's people are the workmanship of God's grace. And we ought to recognize the good that God has wrought in them. That gives glory to God who is the author of that good. And so the way to be a good husband or a good wife is not to be constantly fixating on the negative in my spouse. The way to be a good parent is not to be obsessed with all of the negative and always pointing out the bad, but never speaking a word of encouragement to my child. No love. Love deals with sin, but love also rejoices in the truth. And love rejoices in God's works of truth, in the life of my neighbor, in the life of my spouse, the life of my child. Love acknowledges that. and gives God the glory for that. That's important in our relationships. That we acknowledge, speak of the good that we see in one another. 
It's put there. It's worked there by God. The glory belongs to him. That means rejoicing in the truth wherever it's found. Rejoicing in the truth throughout the church, Catholic. Wherever God's gospel is proclaimed, wherever God's gospel is confessed, we rejoice in it. We ought to rejoice in it. It means rejoicing not in my neighbor's fall into sin, but rejoicing in the repentance of a sinner, rejoicing in the conversion of an unbeliever. The angels in heaven see fit to rejoice over such things. Do we? Do we? Christian's joy is rooted in the truth of God, the wonderful works of God. And that leads then to the final applications. First, this ultimately rejoicing in the truth means rejoicing in and rejoicing with Jesus Christ. That comes out in the text in this way. When you look at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13, or rather 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. That second appearance of the word rejoiceth is a slightly different word than the first one. It has a prefix attached to it. The prefix with. Rejoicing with the truth. And the idea here is that the true joyfulness of love is a shared joyfulness. It's a joyfulness shared with the truth. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in iniquity is a kind of solo rejoicing. It's a false rejoicing. It's a selfish rejoicing. But rejoicing in the truth is rejoicing with the truth who is Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in what he rejoices in and rejoicing with him. And that's the beauty of rejoicing in the truth. It's a beginning, it's a foretaste of heavenly life. It's delighting in our Savior and rejoicing with Him, sharing His joy. That's the joyfulness of true love. That's the joyfulness of covenant fellowship. Rejoicing in and with the Lord. That's the joy that abundantly satisfies the soul. And that's the joy that overcomes sin in our lives. The key to overcoming our besetting sins is joy. Yes, Part of conversion, a very important part, is sorrow for sin. Grieving over our sin, confessing it, amputating the things that tempt us to sin, putting them out of our lives, avoiding temptation, that's all an important part of it. But think of the instruction of Lord's Day 33 of the Catechism. The positive side of daily conversion is a sincere joy of heart in God. 
Rejoicing in the truth is ultimately what puts the nails in sin's coffin. Because when your heart is enthralled with the truth of the Lord, when you rejoice in Him, in His beauty, and His goodness, His purity, His holiness, sin loses its attraction. It doesn't look so good anymore. It doesn't pull as strongly. It's not near as delightful as it once was. The poison begins to be much less sweet and eventually becomes unpalatable. How can it compare with the sweetness of rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Nothing helps us conquer our sin like rejoicing in the Lord. And so, beloved, in your daily battle, your battle against sin, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in His truth. And those temptations, which were so strong before, start to become weaker and weaker. That sin that you wanted so bad, gave into so much, not going to want it anymore. Because I have Christ. I have His truth. I don't need anything else. That's my joy. There I find my true and abiding happiness. May God so grant that we rejoice in the Lord always, not in iniquity, but rejoice in the truth. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy truth. The truth who is Jesus Christ, the truth of Thy Word. Grant that we may find our abiding joy in Thy truth. And that as we do, the attractiveness of sin may diminish. Father, if we are struggling with sin in our lives, kindle that joy in Christ. Cause that joy to overcome and to blossom. Grant that thy word may give us that joy. As we have thought upon Christ and what he has done for us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.